Let's open the word of God in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, and we'll be reading from verse 1. Matthew chapter 21, reading from verse 1. This is Easter season, we can tell, because when we open up television, we have the Da Vinci Code, and demons and angels, or whatever that movie was on last night. I just clicked by and saw it. We're so religious at Easter time. Just want to excuse myself. Ellen and I will be leaving quickly. We have a funeral at 2 o'clock in Three Rivers. We have to stop at wherever that place is. We'll have a Harvey's uh, on the way home and uh, get to the funeral by 2 o'clock. So excuse us if we leave quickly after the service. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and other, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The triumphal entry. Now I love royalty and I love pageantry. My mother was a Brit. We were brought up honoring Her Majesty. Um, my dad had the honor of Representing one of the people who represented the Canadian Navy at Queen Elizabeth's marriage. Um, and I guess that in the world in which we live, in which sometimes we're disappointed in our politicians, to me, Queen Elizabeth has been a source of stability in some sense. Now, cr crowning a new king, that's always been a it's been a symbol of glory and power and majesty. I read recently that when Queen Victoria was crowned, her crown was encrusted with great rubies and sapphires surrounding a 309-carat diamond. 309 carats. When I got engaged, I managed to find enough money for a quarter carat. Um, 309, I think I bought a half a carat for our 40th anniversary or something, 
was her 50th, I forget what it was. 309 carat diamond, and her scepter was cut by a diamond measuring 516 carats. Magnificent carriages, beautiful robes, high-ranking ranking political and religious leaders attending, music ceremonies. Our Lord was declared king, sitting on a baby donkey. Perhaps one of the great ceremonies that existed at the time in which our Lord was living was the Roman triumphal entry, which reserved for a general who had killed at least 5,000 enemies. They had quite a way of judging uh, people's efficiency. The procession into Rome was led by trumpeters and floats representing the captured cities, wagons filled with captured gold and silver and works of art. Scipio Africanus, who conquered Spain and Carthage, um, we're told that he brought with him 123,000 pounds of silver. I typed gold, I made a mistake, excuse me. 123 pounds of silver from Spain and Carthage. He was preceded by 70 white oxen, harpers, pipers, lictors. Lictors were Roman officials dressed in scarlet robes, incense burners. Oh dear, my spelling checker changed that word, incense burners. The general himself was in purple robes and wearing a crown of gold, and the soldiers followed. Every soldier was carrying prizes, and all the soldiers wore crowns. And the general mounted to the temple of Jupiter, and he laid his flute at the, food of the, at the feet of the gods, and he offered sacrifices. That was triumphal entry in Roman culture. Now up to this point, up to Matthew 21, Matthew has spent 20 chapters to describe about three years of, our, of Jesus' ministry. First chapter two talks about his, his birth, but mostly 20 chapters talking about his ministry, three years. And now Matthew will devote eight chapters, nearly 30% of his gospel, to the final week of Jesus' life. Now, substantial portions of the four Gospels are divided, devoted to the events of this week. Uh, Matthew gives us eight uh, chapters. Luke gives us six. Um, Mark gives us six. Luke gives us five. And John gives us uh, eight. So it's, it's an important period this, this week. And many things in this week that change history take place. There's the triumphant entry we're going to talk about this morning. There's a cleansing of the temple the second time that Jesus uh, drove out the money changers and those who were selling animals in the temple. The fig tree was cursed. There was a debate uh, between Jesus and the, and the Jewish leaders. Jesus pronounced woes on the religious leaders. The, the, the hardest words the Lord spoke were to these leaders. There was the Olivet Discourse in which the Lord talked about his coming re return for the second time. There was the final Passover supper. Our Lord was arrested. He had his trial. He was crucified. He was buried. The resurrection, the great commission, all that happens in these final chapters. Now, in the week preceding chapter 21, Jesus has journeyed from the north, Galilee, through the west bank, And that's wrong. What's wrong with me this morning? Through the east bank, 
and Judea and Jerry, and then back through Jericho. And we see that in chapter 20, verse 29. And, and we need to remember that it takes eight hours of hard uphill walking to travel the 25 kilometers from Jericho. Jerusalem is 1,000 meters higher than Jericho. If you travel from Quebec City to Shikutami, you will go through mountains that are about 1,000 meters high. This was a dangerous road. It was infamous for robbers and murderers. The story of the Good Samaritan took place on that road. And as the road approached Jerusalem, it wandered behind the Mount of Olives and passed through Bethany, where Jesus stayed during his final week. Now, Bethany is about three kilometers southeast of Jerusalem. And I'm going to put some maps up here. Um, can you see the road here a little bit? I've seen that road from about a mile away, and you can see that it's a road. I put a new battery in this thing. It's not working again. Um, put, a, put a new battery in this morning or last night. But you can see the Jericho Road going up through those mountains. Uh, the next slide will show you um, how the Jericho Road was, was difficult. You see Jericho on the bottom right here and how you have to go up and down and up and down and up and down, up, up, up. 3,000 feet, 1,000 meters, continually going up. And the next uh, slide will show you how when Jesus, um, I'm sorry my clicker isn't working, but you can see Bethany on the right. You can see Bethpage where he found the gold colt. And you can see that they kind of go around the Mount of Olives and then back down to the temple. So that's the route which our Lord took during, and while well, he was, uh, well, he was uh, during the, Final Passion Week, he was living mostly in Bethany in the house of Lazarus and his two sisters. Now, the Passover was always a time of messianic fever. People were expecting the Messiah to appear during the Passover. And Jesus most likely arrived in Bethany on Friday afternoon, the week before he was crucified. And he celebrated the Sabbath there in the little town of Bethany. And on Sunday, our Lord directed his, his disciples to make preparations for his entry to Jerusalem. And I think that it was, this, it was that Sunday that we read about in chapter 21. And they were to find a donkey with its colt. Now, only Matthew of the four Gospels tells us that there were two animals. And I want to make something clear here. Um, I did a fair amount of reading uh, preparing this uh, presentation. And um, uh, some people have really like to, to, to define problems in the scriptures that aren't there. In verse 8 we wrote, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. No, excuse me, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put the, on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now I want to ask you a question here. Does this tell us that he sat on the cloaks or that he sat on both the colt and the mother? What do you think? Is it necessary to read that and say, this is a contradiction? Jesus sat on the mother and the colt at the same time? Um, were they side by side? He had one leg on each one? Uh, what is this saying? I think it's clear that they didn't have saddles necessarily back in those days. Certainly not the poor people. And they just put their cloaks on and on the animals. And he sat on one of the animals, the young colt, on the cloaks, not on the two animals at once. I say that because at Easter time we have like these great thinkers on television that try to tell us all the errors of the Bible just so that we can think through that. 
Um, now, so they were to find a Kong donkey with his colt in the village of Bethpage, which is about a kilometer east of Jerusalem. And Bethpage means house of the early fig. Beth always means, or bait in Hebrew always means house. Bethpage means the house of the early fig. And it was near here that our Lord cursed the barren fig tree. Um, Bethpage was known as a place with a lot of figs. The disciples were instructed to say to anybody questioning them, the Lord needs them. And effectively, in the book of Luke, um, we'll see that that happens. And our Lord uses the Greek word kurios, and he says, the Lord needs them, kurios. That's a general word used to designate one's masters, but more and more it was used to describe one's deity. And already the use of this word demonstrated that our Lord was in perfect control of the events that would take place that week. Now Jesus, as I understand it, was in Bethany, a couple of kilometers away from Bethpage. But he knew that there was a colt and a donkey at a certain place. And the disciples would go there. And then when they went there, they'd take the colt and the mother the, the, the donkey, and someone would ask them, what do you take? That's not yours. You can't have it. And told them what to say and knew that the master, the owner of that colt would let them go. Jesus knew all that and he was two kilometers away. Jesus is in perfect control. And, and that's important to remember as we go to Easter time because once again, our, our experts on television will tell us that Jesus made a miscalculation he thought he was going to go to Jerusalem and that he would be crowned king and, and he would set his kingdom in place and he made a political miscalculation. No, that's not what happened. Jesus was in perfect control. He knew what he was doing. No accident, no mis miscalculation. This colt um, had never been ridden before. It was an honor that the owner allowed our Lord to be the first to ride him. Matthew informs us in verse 4 that riding into Jerusalem on a colt was the fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah, writing some 400 years perhaps before these events, uh, prophesied this. Um, Say to the daughter of Zion, Zion is Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, <laughs> I like that word, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. So our Lord here is accomplishing a prophecy made 400 years beforehand. And Jesus is also the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Judah. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, as was David. Jacob had prophesied in Genesis 49 concerning Judah when he was dying and the sons were around him, around his bed. And as was the custom of that time, he would pronounce a blessing on each one of his sons. And Jacob prophesied like this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the scepter, the sign of reigning, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, speaking of his death on the cross, his blood flowing at the cross. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So this prophecy tells us that a king will descend from Judah and he will rule all nations. Our Lord here is accomplishing a prophecy from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Zechariah, the second last book. 
Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, and Zechariah, the second last book of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus' humility, his gentleness, humility, gentleness, never quite sure how to translate that Greek word, is emphasized in Zechariah's prophecy. The two meanings are there. What a contrast with the arrogance so evident in many political leaders around the world today. I don't think we should mix politics with our church life. I won't say too much, but I look at what's going around in our country, in our country to the south, and what's going over, over in Europe right now. And we listen to these leaders, and I think to myself, what arrogance. What arrogance. One of the biggest problems we have today, what arrogance. And the Lord here is gentle. He's humble. Donkeys were the people's animal. Used in agriculture and trade. Uh, poor people used them as a beast for riding. Kings in wartime rode great horses. Horses back then aren't as big as they are now perhaps, but they were still magnificent. And the king would have the best and the greatest of the horses. Kings who rode a colt, and that happened, we see it in the Old Testament on occasion, it meant they were coming in peace. King riding on a great horse as they entered a city was coming in magnificence and perhaps in war. The king who rode a colt was a symbol of peace. And we can picture the contrast. And armed soldier astride a great horse versus a plainly clad civilian on a little donkey, on a baby donkey. Now, perhaps the crowd thought that Jesus descending the Mount of Olives, because remember that when you left Bethphage and went into the city to the temple, you're descending the Mount of Olives. Um, the Mount of Olives is perhaps the highest of the mountains that are part of Jerusalem, uh, overlooking the other mountains. I can see him coming down that mountain of olives on this, um, on this colt. Um, perhaps they thought that Jesus was accomplishing another prophecy in Zechariah in chapter 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. That hasn't happened yet. I think it'll happen when the Lord comes back later. But these people seeing Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives on a colt, remembering Zechariah's prophecy about the colt, remembering chapter 14, fervent expectation of the Messiah during the Passover, perhaps their mind came, turned to this passage and they thought, ah, this Messiah is coming. The people spread their cloaks in Jesus' path as a symbol of their submission to him as king. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 in the Old Testament, we have the story of how Jehu became king. And we read, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and, claimed and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So this taking of our garments, the, the, the cloak is the outer garment. They take the garment, they put it under him, and it's a sign of submission and proclamation that this person is king. And the branches from palm trees were a symbol of Jewish nationalism and victory. 190 years before this took place, the crowds celebrated Judas Maccabeus, uh, the Maccabees, which, is in the, uh, which are part of 
books were written during the time of the Old Testament, which were not inspired. But we have the true story of Judas Maccabees, who delivered Jerusalem and purified the temple, and the crowd celebrated his arrival in Jerusalem by cutting branches from palm trees and putting them beneath his feet. They cried, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression which means, O save. Probably by the time of our Lord, it had come to mean, uh, it had come to become an expression of praise to Yahweh, to, to, to Jehovah, to God. Um, but his root meaning was, O save. They cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is very significant. In the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, there are sections of Psalms which were called the Hallel. Hallel is a Hebrew word meaning praise. And there's in particular, uh, there's particularly a group of psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, that were sung during the Passover. And the last one of those psalms was Psalm 118. And this expression, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118. That's very, very significant. They were singing these psalms, 113 to 118, this great Hallel during the Passover, and they took the last one of these psalms, Psalm 118, which probably is the psalm which our Lord sang with his disciples when he left the, 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 the when he inaugurated the Lord's table, the last Passover he, he ate with his disciples, that says they sang a hymn and they went out. It was probably Psalm 118. And here they quote the Psalm 118, which is a psalm of royalty, this last psalm in this great Hallel, and they quote this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is messianic. The title of Son of David is also messianic. The crowd is acclaiming him as their long-awaited Messiah. They've seen his miracles. Just a few days before, his miracles have been crowned by the resurrection of Lazarus. But oh, this is a mixed crowd. There's a crowd behind, um, perhaps a crowd of people that had come from Nazareth because it's the Passover. Uh, a, a census was made some 10 years after the Lord of our life. Uh, somebody decided to count how many lambs were, were sacrificed in Jerusalem during the Passover. They came up to 200 and just over 200,000 lambs would be sacrificed during the Passover. By Jewish custom, no more than 10 people, there had to be a lamb for at least 10 people. You couldn't have more than 10 people per lamb. So if you multiply 200,000 by 10, you come to 2 million, maybe a bit less than that. Maybe an average was seven or eight people for a lamb, I don't know. But you can imagine the crowd in Jerusalem at that time. And many of them had come down from Galilee. And perhaps those are the ones that were following Jesus as they came into Jerusalem. And before, there's a crowd before them as well, it tells. The crowd that went before him and that followed him. They were all shouting. And perhaps those were people that were already in the city. And this was a mixed crowd. Some see, mixed crowd. Some see Jesus as a Messiah. But as a Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans. <laughs> Others see him only as a prophet. Who is this, they cried. And the crowd said, this is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He's a prophet. And the religious leaders uh, say, uh, say to Jesus, stop this. Stop this. They are annoyed. They are threatened. And they question his authority. Mixed crowd. 
And this is also a fickle crowd. When this crowd figured out that Jesus had come to save them from their sin, not from the Romans, they quickly turned on him. And the crowd that cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They soon cried out, crucify him. We'll not have this man to rule over us. Just seven days later, a fickle crowd. Crowds are fickle. Jesus knew their hearts. He had wept over the city as he had approached it. Luke chapter 19. He knew that city. Sometimes we have to do difficult things. Um, there are times when I've had to go to meetings, where I've had to meet people, face situations where I, I would give anything not to go. And I have to confess there are times I didn't go. <laughs> you know, I found an excuse not to go. I don't think anybody, I'm not going to say I think, I know, that nobody has faced a more difficult situation than what our Lord faced on the cross. Not only physical suffering and the rejection and the mocking, but the Holy Son of God having the weight of our, our sins placed on his head, separated from his Father, being treated as if he had committed every sin that you have sinned. And he knew, he knew what was going to happen. It wasn't an accident. Don't listen to the people on television. And he went anyway. Conclusion. A few points here. Who is Jesus? The humility of our Savior is a balm for my soul. The older I get, the more I bathe myself in the humility of my Lord. I've worked with arrogant bosses. I was on a school board for 30 years and I worked with arrogant ministers of education and even worse than ministers of education were the professionals under them, some of them. Our politicians talked about that. And I approached my Lord if anybody has a right to be arrogant and proud and overbearing, it would be my Savior, my Lord, who is the creator of all things. And I approach him. Our Lord said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you're having a hard time, and you're discouraged, and life is hard, and there's been loss, and you're desperate for hope, and acceptance, and love, turn to the Savior. He is gentle. He's lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls in Him. Secondly, in conclusion, the great misunderstanding. The, the people's great insight. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah, the King, Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. They understood that, at least for a few moments. But they had a great misunderstanding. 
He would enter Jerusalem by his mighty works and take the throne and make Israel free from Rome. A political solution. Nowadays, we're always looking for political solutions for our problems. And yes, there are political solutions. All right. But that's not what our problem is. The problem in Canada, the problem in North America, the problem in Europe, the problem in this world is not political in nature. That is not the root problem. The people in Jesus' day were looking for the wrong type of Savior, and the people today are still looking for the wrong type, wrong type of Savior. They wanted a great political and military leader who would deliver them from their enemies. And they did not understand that their most important problem was not Rome, it was their personal sin. And the greatest problem we have in Canada today, in Quebec today, in our cities, in our nation, in our world, is not political. Our problem is our sin. And if we deal with our sin, the other problems will look after themselves often. This is not how it would happen. Jesus would take his throne, but it would be through voluntary suffering and death and resurrection. The rejection and murder of Jesus a few days later the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later, Jesus saw it all coming. And in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, the builders rejected the stone and threw it away. Great misunderstanding. Oh, if we understood as a people, as a nation, who Jesus was and why he came and how important that is to us. Thirdly, conclusion, admiring Jesus. I quote John Piper here. He tells us that we must admire his merciful sovereignty and his sovereign mercy. Jesus, and if you know anything about John Piper, everything he says he found in Jonathan Edwards. Right? He just takes Jonathan Edwards and makes it more simple so we can understand it. And I recognize Edwards here, but Piper says it so well. He says, Jesus unites in himself so many other qualities that in other peoples would be contrary to each other. He was so powerful. He calmed the storm. He healed the sick. He raised people from the dead. He's the great creator who made all things by speaking them into existence. He is absolutely sovereign. He will judge this world and everyone who has lived in it. His judgment will be based on truth, complete knowledge, Absolute justice. Oh, but he's powerful, but he's also absolutely merciful. Absolutely powerful, absolutely merciful. His death is not an accident. It's not a miscalculation. It's not a misunderstanding of the political realities. He had decided from all eternity to enter Jerusalem to die. He had determined to die at the exact time, more, at the same time when more than 200,000 lambs would die in the hope that they would cover people's sins for a while. Jesus' death would not just cover people's sins for a day or for a year. The Passover not, would not have to be repeated every year, year after year, for thousands of years. His death would pay for, remove sin once and for all. So what type of savior are you looking for? Are you like these Jewish people who are looking for a political savior? Are you looking for somebody to make you feel good about yourself? Someone to meet your needs? We all have the same, very basic, most important problem. Our sin has separated us from God. And it will prevent us from spending eternity 
in his presence. Let's be honest and look at the real problem. Let's go back over the real message of salvation, of why Jesus came. God created mankind to be in perfect fellowship with him. God created man in his image. And that's a very deep subject, the fact that God has created us in his image. But one of the things that means is that we can be in fellowship with God. Animals can be intelligent. Animals can be wonderful. They can have great instincts. I know certain dogs who are more intelligent than their masters. Okay? Um, My dad was a sailor. I always wanted to become a sailor. Um, I love whales. If there's a program on television about whales, I'll watch it and I'll record it and watch it ten times. Ask my wife. Um, They're intelligent. But as intelligent as they are, they cannot be in fellowship, in communion, in relationship with God. That is reserved to us as humans. We are created for that. And until we are in relationship with God, we have a hunger, we have a hole in our being which can never be filled. And God only gave one restriction to the first humans. Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, deliberately disobeyed their creator and brought judgments on themselves. And mankind has been on a steady downward moral slope ever since. Don't believe the idea that thousands of years ago men were like that and we've been going uphill ever since. No, we've been going downhill. Mankind has been on a steady downward moral slope ever since. And I am and you are sinners because we've inherited Adam's sinful nature and we're sinners by choice of a practice. And you know that. Let's be honest about that. Our greatest need is to be in communion with our great creator. That's what we need more than anything. And God cannot accept us into his eternal presence until our sin is dealt with. We are destined to spend eternity far from God, in eternal misery, having come far short of the reason for our existence. But God. Oh, I love the word but. But God, in his great love, has provided a solution. He sent to earth his son, Jesus Christ, God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And in a way I'll never understand, he became fully human. He maintained his perfect divinity. He was 100% man, 100% God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He did something that Adam didn't do. He did something that you and I can never do. He, He vindicated God's purpose when he created mankind. Finally, one man lived the life that we should all live. He accomplished God's will. He resisted all temptation and lived in perfect obedience, in perfect communion with God his Father. And on the Christ, Jesus took our sins on himself. And God treated him as if he had committed all the sins that you and I have ever committed, the things that we're ashamed of. The things perhaps, perhaps that others don't know that we wouldn't, wouldn't, others, wouldn't want others to know. He took that on himself. And he paid the price for our sins, dealing once and for all with the penalty we so richly deserved. And this is the Savior we so desperately desperately need. He deals with our real problem. He deals with our sin. But God does not force himself on anyone. God has created you with a free will, with the ability to choose. Jesus paid the price, but you have to receive him as your savior. 
You need to admit that you cannot do anything to resolve your sin problem. You need to bow before the Holy Almighty God and confess your sin and your sinfulness. And you must tell God that you accept Christ's sacrifice on your, on your behalf. And you must decide to submit yourselves to God's sovereign lordship. This morning, you must receive Christ. I have to go to a funeral. If you need help receiving Christ this morning, I'll be late for the funeral. And there are others here who will wait for you. If you need to receive Christ today, speak to somebody. Speak to one of the leaders in this church. Speak to me on the way out. I'll wait for you. Today, receive Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus is king. These people received him as king for a few moments, for a few days, and they rejected him. And we confess that we're not any different from them, Father. You know about our sin. You know about our rebellion. You know that we want to rule our own lives. We don't want to give you the place in our lives that belongs to you. You know about our sin, our disobedience. And we turn to you, Father. Thank you for the salvation you've provided in Christ, a perfect salvation, all that was necessary so that we can receive pardon and live in perfect communion with you for all eternity. And this morning, for anyone who has not yet received Christ, we pray that it might be today that they make that decision to turn to you for salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name.